years ago, one of the best concerts I ever went to, I was at Nirvana Unplugged. I couldn't believe they gave me tickets. Yeah, so I'm there, right? And Nirvana ran through their set. It was fantastic. Then after they saw all the MTV suits kind of huddle around them because they wanted them to do some more takes of different songs. And I remember the people in the crowd were kind of like praying, no, that was perfect. Don't, don't give in to these guys. Don't do anything more. And that was it. They were done. They, they ran through those songs once and they were out of there. And I thought that, that's what that's Nirvana is like, remember, that's why they're so cool. They were not going to give them a second, third, fourth take. They wanted to be real. They wanted to be true. It sounded great the first time. And they, and they were out of there. So. So, that's, so that's what I do here on Drinks with Tony. <laughs> so you're continuing the tradition of Nirvana. So God, God bless you for doing so. Kurt, Co- Kurt Cobain is proud right now wherever he is. Well, that's the highest compliment ever. This is CJ Farley, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, show we have C.J. Farley. His novels include Game World, Kingston by Starlight, and My Favorite War. His latest novel is Around Harvard Square. C.J. Farley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, a sad addendum to that Nirvana story. So I'm there watching Nirvana, and I think, I, I gotta talk, I've never talked to Kurt Cobain. And I walk up to him afterwards, and I'm about to say something to him, but I thought, you know, this is weird. I hate saying something to someone that I've never been properly introduced to. Maybe I'm old school in that way. So I thought, I'll talk to him later. The publicist says we're going to hook up an interview. Of course, it never happened. He ended up passing away before I ever talked to him. And, and probably not a, a month goes by. I'm thinking about the chance. Like, ah, if I just talked to him. If I just talked to him. Let me be morbid here. If you just talked to him and it changed his mind. I, I don't think I had that kind of power. It's weird. Back in the 90s, I used to be a music critic for Time Magazine back in the 90s. And there are a couple people like that where I still think about, like, you know, like I I'd hooked up an, uh, an interview with the Notorious B.I.G. And um, I was looking forward to it. I was getting ready for it. I was supposed to talk to him in Los Angeles. And, of course, the, the day we had scheduled for me to talk to him ended up being the day of his funeral. So I never got to talk to him either. And then I remember I got nervous about like people dying on me, so I thought I better talk to Puff Daddy before he dies. And of course, Puff Daddy is still alive. So I did talk to him. He's still alive and kicking. He's he's worth a billion dollars now. So um, you know, people I talk to live. People I don't get to talk to, they die. So it's, it's kind of sad. So the lesson learned here is, if you're in the music world and you're a, a big time celebrity, talk to C.J. Farley and you'll live. Exactly it. You know, I talked to Aretha Franklin. She lived a nice long life. Things went well with her. Bob Dylan, I interviewed him. He's still kicking. He may live to 100. So I think Mick Jagger should call me too. I'd like to talk to him. I'm really hoping he does well with what's going on with his health. And I, I love the Rolling Stones. So, you know, talk to me. Things go well. Okay, I, I'm really excited about that because I went to my doctor to get a checkup. And, you know, there were some things where he was like, all right. But now that I'm here with you, I'm feeling a lot more, uh, how do you say, vibrant and um, go, will, will go well into my golden years. You know, the thing about the music industry, I know we were talking about books, but let's talk about the music industry. You know, it, it actually is a very, very kind of, it's not a profession that's good for your health. I mean, there are so many musicians that I talk to who aren't with us anymore. And I remember I talked to Aaliyah. She was an R&B singer from the 90s, really popular. You know, she had that weird marriage with R. Kelly. Um, I interviewed her. Um, and then she ended up dying very young in a plane crash. And I wrote a book about her. But... um. And I still think about that. I mean, the music industry, there's something about it in terms of the, the lifestyles, the, the small planes you're on, the drugs. Um, it, there's something about it that's really not good for your health. Um, if, if, you, if you ever have to choose between becoming a, a musician and becoming a writer, probably writers, I think, they have a little more longevity, I think, health-wise. But it's just my guess. I haven't done these studies on it, but it seems that, that way to me. Um, do you think it could be because... Like the way the way like a like big bands happen and musicians happen, you're getting adoration from like you know sometimes you're getting adoration from like five thousand to ten thousand people, and then you have, and the way the world constructs around you. I'm sounding way more intelligent than I am, but the way people look at you, you get that weird look of they are so enamored of you. Whereas writers, they just kind of look at us and go, oh yeah you. You know, I think you're onto something there, but I think there are certain writers that get that kind of rock star-like attention, and I think it does affect some of them. Like, I'm thinking of another guy I talked to before he died, David Foster Wallace. I interviewed him for the Wall Street Journal, 
that he, he, you can Google it, it ended up being his last uh, major interview. Um, I remember talking, it was just on the phone, but I remember talking to him and it was a strange phone call because um, everything I, we talked about he kind of argued with and things that we talked about that seemed simple, he would come up with caveats and reasons why maybe it was more complex than we'd, we'd sort of outlined beforehand. And I, thought, I, I remember hanging up thinking, that was a very strange phone call. He seemed to have a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, arguments about things that really weren't things we necessarily needed to argue about. And the interview came out, uh, and, um, and then, of course, uh, it was only a few months later that he actually you know, committed suicide. And I realized, oh, there's a lot more going on in his head than I w- would have ever have thought. I mean, it was a great interview. He was a charming guy on the phone, super smart. Uh, I love Infinite Jest. I love his um, his uh, his essay writing too, but uh, it's strange how much you can miss over the phone with somebody um, when you talk to them. Oh yeah, that's why I only do this in person because it, there's so much communication between just being in the same. You know, it's like people are like, "Oh, can you do a Skype interview?" I'm like, "No, that's two dimensional. It just it, it's not the same." Okay, now we got to get back to but but so you interviewed David Foster Wallace and then he died, so. What, so maybe it's just musicians that need to talk to you, and the writers might need to stay away because now I'm starting to get worried about my health. You know, now I'm going to throw out that whole theory because um, I suddenly realized I've talked to a lot of people who have died. I mean, uh, another person I talked to who died unexpectedly not much l- that long after I talked to her. You can Google this one too, Amy Winehouse. I m- remember it took me months to track her down, months to get her to degree the interview. Finally, she gives me a call. Um, I, have a t- I have a chat with her. It's kind of a strange chat where I couldn't quite... I thought it was, was a British accent. I couldn't quite tell what she was saying much of the time. And, um, and of course, she and I was trying to get her to come to the Wall Street Journal because I had this series back then called the WSJ Cafe where I'd bring an artist to perform a couple songs. And, but she ended up not being able to come in because she had some outstanding like, warrants that weren't allowing her to, to tour in the U.S. at that time. And, of course, she ended up you know, passing on and dying, and I never did get a chance to, chance to talk to her. But it, 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 there was um, a silver lining there because after she passed on, I got really depressed thinking I missed missed out on that. This is this is not good. And um, and uh, I remember I talked to some other publicists about like you know who else I could get. And one other person recommended, hey, you should um you should bring in this client of mine, um, Adele. You know she's terrific. I think she's an up and comer. They sent me her album early, and I'm like. Yeah, this is really quite good. Let's bring her in. And you can, this is on YouTube, too, because it's, it's all on YouTube, this inter- interview and concert she did with us at the Wall Street Journal. She came in, and the minute she opened her mouth, I'm like, I, I can't believe this tragedy has led me to this incredible discovery, um, because obviously she was an amazing singer. She sang this in a room at the Wall Street Journal that only held, like, 50 people. And literally a week later, we couldn't have gotten her because she became such a huge star. I, I haven't I haven't talked to her since, but uh, we we got her right at the mo- right moment. So and you could and you could just you could just feel her energy probably in that room where you're just like, oh, this is explosive. This has to be somewhere big. It was great and funny. I, I teach as an adjunct at Iona College, a college in New Rochelle, New York, and I always try to get my students involved in whatever I'm doing if it's cool. And so I remember announcing to the class. Hey, I'm going to be bringing this this a singer Adele, who wants to come and be part of the audience. And only one kid, a kid who, by the way, got an A plus in the course. Only one kid agreed to do it. He came there. He was Adele's gopher for the day, getting her coffee, getting her order she needed. And um, he didn't know who Adele was. I think at the time he kind of was sort of familiar with Chasing Pavements, her her biggest hit at the time. And of course, a couple months later, everyone knew who she was, and the whole class was angry at me, like, "Why didn't you tell us it was Adele, Adele?" I'm like. You guys, you know, I give you these opportunities. Yeah. You got, you got to seize them. Yeah, yeah. I, the kids listen to your professors. That's that. Exactly. I'm going old school here. Kids listen to your professors, especially if they're adjuncts, because they're really doing it and out of, they're not doing it for the pay. They're doing it for the out of the good of their hearts. They're trying to educate you guys. So grab your opportunities. Uh, that's that's just beautiful. Okay, now let's back up. So the Nirvana, the Nirvana Unplugged, which uh, I mean, watching it now. Yeah, I would at the time I was I was doing college radio, so I had my you know my snot nose in the air, like oh yeah that rock stuff because we were doing you know we were college radio snooty you know bitches like we were, <laughs> but um so so I, you know I never played Nirvana or anything like that. They were like off our radar, and then um so the when when he killed himself, it wasn't a big thing to me at the time, but 
looking back and then watching that unplugged, it's just like you watch it and you almost want to, I almost want to cry every single time because it's just now I understand what it was. What was it like being at that show? I mean, was it, it did, did it feel momentous or did the, did the, did, was it like more momentous years later looking back at it? It felt momentous at the time. I mean, yeah. at the time I was working as a pop music critic, the pop music critic for, 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 for Time magazine. And so, um, you know, I was the same age as a lot of these bands because I was really young to have the job. And so I was constantly trying to get the coolest kind of rappers and indie artists and, and mainstream rockers to do interviews with us. And, um, and if you read the, the, my book Around Harvard Square, a lot of the, um, the chapter titles, in fact, all the chapter titles are actually named after m- songs that I loved in the 90s. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, it, it, at the time I realized he was someone who was very important, someone who was doing something that was cool. And, um, you know, I, but I also loved, you know, I loved the Smashing Pumpkins. I loved Radiohead. You know, I loved Lauryn Hill, her first album. You know, I loved Nas. Um, I, I love Atiracio Pilatus. They're a great um, Colombian uh, duo um, uh, from the time. I loved the early Shakira, you know, when she, back when she was wearing black leather and had black braids and was, uh, and was playing guitar. You know, there's a lot of great music came out of the 90s. And I don't know if you remember back in that era, but... You know, going into the 90s, people were like, oh, the 90s are going to suck. Music sucks. Music's over. Nothing's good's happening. It's all boy bands and pop music. And then all this great stuff happened. You know, and Nirvana seems so, so mainstream now. Back when they were releasing Bleach, back when Nevermind first dropped, this stuff was dangerous. It was different. It was, it was, it was produced in a different kind of way. It really kind of rocked the music industry in a way that it hadn't been rocked in some time. So, you know, I just loved it. Yeah, I you know I remember that it was you know it was kids uh, with, with kid, um, new kids on the block and and all this mall you know Tiffany doing her mall tours or whatever and then all of a sudden just out of nowhere just the, the culture just shifted like it was like 1991 or something right it was like, boom right. and when you listen to the when you listen to like Radiohead now it probably seems mainstream it seems old school but back in the time it seemed operatic it seemed futuristic. Um, and I, and I remember I did an interview with them years ago in Scotland. They invited me to go on tour with them. But, you know, the, the publicist didn't quite tell me that um, the lead singer, Tom York, didn't want to talk to me. He didn't want to talk to a mainstream publication. So I'd flown all the way up to Scotland. I'm talking to the rest of the band. And I'm like, I'm going to get fired when I get home because if I don't get an interview with, like, the, I've spent all this money to go, to go to Scotland and the lead guy won't talk to me. And then finally, like, late at night... Um, I can't. It, it, I, this is a long time ago, but it's like late night. It has been, has been like 3 a.m. or so. I get this, you know, uh, message slipped under my door, and I don't know how I woke up and someone's knocking the door, and it's Tom York wants you to come out to the tour bus and talk to him. And so I went out to the tour bus, and there Tom York was in the back of the bus, and he was able. He's finally wanted to talk to me. And I don't know why he picked that moment, but uh, <laughs> I guess people do what they want in the 90s, and it, it ended up being a good story for time. So I still love that band. I still listen. I listen to Radiohead all the time. Yeah, I, I I've been listening to more and more Radiohead, and it's the the, the it, you know I, I it's it was like my problem where I was dissing all this music back then <laughs> as a, you know as an idiot kid, and now I'm going back and even like the late '90s stuff and the um like Happy Mondays and that whole scene. I'm like listening to this stuff and going, why did I blow it and miss all this? <laughs> Were you a Lauryn Hill fan? Did you like? Um, rap back in the day, back in the nineties. I, I was well, like when I was like a kid, I was like into Run DMC, like that. That would just blew my mind, yeah. And then, um, and then Public Enemy and Ice T. Those, that's you know, I was just getting those cassettes and going, and we would play those on our college radio days. Holds up. This is that Lauren Hill album. You know that Lauren Hill album holds up one hundred percent today. And my my daughter listens to it. You know, she's thirteen years old. She loves it. Um, you know, even though she never recorded another studio album, I still hope that she she did. She does. That album holds up to anyone who listens to it now. Um, I, I remember I, I actually did the, the cover story on her back in the day for the, for the um, for Time magazine. And my one funny story out of that is um, so uh, I do this interview with Lauren Hill, right? The album hasn't come out yet. She actually gives me an unmastered, unfinished copy of it to, to check out. Just so, you know, I know what I'm writing about. And um, so I'm listening to this album. I'm like, this is going to change everything. This is fantastic. And at the same time, around the same time, I had to do an interview with Bruce Springsteen, who was doing, releasing a, a box set called Tracks, which was um, a compilation of some of his, some of his, best, his best material. It's kind of a greatest hits album. And so I'm out at, at a house he has in New Jersey. 
And after the interview, he goes like, hey, so what are you listening to? Anything good I should be checking out? So I can't believe Bruce Springsteen, one of my idols from childhood, is asking me for recommendations. And I think to myself, back in my car, I have an album that I think is going to be the best album ever uh, for, for rap. And, but, I think, but I only have that one copy, and Lauryn Hill told me not to share it with anybody. But should I share it with Bruce Springsteen? Because they're both from New Jersey, and I just know if he hears it, it's probably going to blow his mind. But I couldn't bring myself to actually give away a copy that an artist trusted me with. So I ended up giving him a copy of the, the latest Seal album, <laughs> which wasn't as good, of course. I love Seal. He's a good guy. But uh, I'm sure after Bruce Springs is like, this is the best he's got, Seal? Maybe this guy shouldn't be a pop music critic. If I'd just given him that Lauryn Hill album, he would have thought I was cool. So, oh well. That's the way it goes sometimes. Um, and how did you end up becoming a pop music critic for, for time? Well, you know, it's just... A weird path, you know. I always loved music, you know. I always loved writing. I was on the the Crimson and the Lampoon back when I was at Harvard. I ended up becoming a um, writing for USA Today after college. Um, I, I did a lot of freelancing for the Boston Globe and Chicago Tribune, almost all music. I wrote about some music for the for USA Today. Ended up going to Time Magazine, um, and uh, and Time Magazine at first I was just you know another sort of writer researcher um, there, and. Um, but they had a music critic there, um, uh, uh, Jay Cox, great guy, great music critic. But he was more into um, classic rock, you know, like um, the Rolling Stones and like U2. And, um, and I wanted to do stuff that was sort of more, you know, uh, p- people in their 20s and teens and Green Day, who was new at the time. And I wanted to do the, the stuff that was happening um, in terms of rap music. No, uh, the, 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 the cover I did on Lauryn Hill was actually the first... Um, uh, cover on rap music that Time Magazine never did. And so, after a while, I started doing more of that kind of stuff. And he ended up working with, leaving Time to work with Scorsese, and uh, they made me the pop music critic. So, that's, that's basically the way it happened. So, now, now please tell me you have that, uh, that Time Magazine cover framed of, that you did on Lauryn Hill. Or... I don't have it framed, but you can Google it. It's there. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great cover. You know, people take it for granted now because, you know, we see more black women on the cover of national magazines but back then that almost never happened it was so hard to get a black person on the cover of any national magazine unless it was for something wrong unless it was oj unless they had killed their their ex-wife or something they could you, i couldn't get them on the cover but it was great to get someone on the cover for their artistic accomplishment um and um and uh someone who was doing something that was real and changing music it was, I, I, and it, was, it was like a dream when I finally, I finally got that on. Then we we had um, a great photographer who did it, um, a black photographer, because um, these magazines didn't employ that many black photographers. We managed to get one that could do that picture, and it worked out really well. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So you've been doing this. You've been doing this for decades, essentially. Are, are you still? Do you still have your finger in uh, writing for music and stuff? You know, now I work for as an executive um, editor for Audible. And so instead of writing stuff myself about music, I often will, you know, uh, find people who want to do Audible originals for us and do that kind of stuff. I also, um, you know, not long ago I worked with Alex Gibney, the documentary filmmaker, and together we did a a film for HBO called called Mr. Dynamite, The Rise of James Brown. Uh, And I, I wrote that and was a consulting producer on that. And it was um, the, the best, most watched documentary on HBO that year. So I still do that, and I write books about music. I wrote a book about Bob Marley and a book about Aaliyah. Um, so that's what I do. So that's so with Audible, um, that's that's actually segueing into more of um, doing doing stuff for that switches over to TV and film. Is that? Yeah, you know what? The um, I've always written books about music. You know, like one thing I did back when I was a time, I worked on a project called The Blues. It was um, a documentary series that Martin Scorsese did about the roots of American music. And um, I got a call once from his people saying, like, hey, um, do you want to work on this product? I'm like, let's see, do I have time to work with Scorsese on a product with the blues? I think I'm going to clear my schedule. So um, so that was, that was a pleasure to work on. You know, and so I co-wrote and co-edited the companion volume for that. And what it was is um, telling the stories of people like Bessie Smith, um, people, these great blues icons and people didn't know a whole lot about, but had really interesting stories that needed to be brought to light. 
because um, we all know about you know the stories of a lot of early rockers. We don't always know the stories of the the blues figures that influence the music we listen to today. So it was fun to tell those stories. I thought it was important. The series worked out really well, and the companion volume was 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 cool to work on. I mean, if somebody said, um, you know, Scorsese wants to work with you, but you're going to have to cut off your left leg, I'd be like, what time do I need to be there, and where can I get the tourniquet? Yeah, I, I don't need the left leg. I mean, the right leg is a leg that I kick a soccer ball with, so I'm okay, I'm all, all good with the left leg. So the right leg, though, i got to keep that. I can hop better on my right leg. Yeah, but he was, he was cool to work with. I mean, it was a, it was a great project. It was a, it was a fun book, and the, the blues is the thing that's really important to me in sort of educating people about the, the history of American music. That's one thing I've been really interested in doing you know, throughout my writing career is really sort of talking about sort of figures. And, and like, I wrote the Bob Marley book because, you know, I was actually born in Kingston, Jamaica. I was raised in upset New York. Uh, um, I, left, I left Jamaica when I was a month old, so I have no accent. I wish I could fake one for you, but it's really bad. It comes across sort of a cool runnings kind of thing if I fake one for you. Well, you, you brought that up, so we're going to need the fake Jamaican accent. <laughs> I can't do it. Cause, uh, my mom you tease. It, my mom hears it, she'll be upset. She, she knows how bad my accent is when I fake it, and she has a real Jamaican accent, so I have to leave it for her. Did she keep her Jamaican accent pretty thick even now? Yeah, you know, it's funny the way that works. Some people completely can get rid of their accents. Like, I assume Charlize Theron, who's from South Africa, I assume she had an accent at some point, but she seems to have not have one. Arnold Schwarzenegger obviously left, you know, Austria years ago. He still has a thick accent. Um, my mom still has an accent, even though she left um, when she was in her 20s, and you can still hear the accent. It's, it's just the way the brain works sometimes. Sometimes you, you can't lose an accent. It trips me out. My grandfather, uh, he was from Norway, uh, and he, you know, he came to the states like 30 years earlier, and uh, he still sounded like uh, Tom Waits talking gibberish because he smoked all the time. So. Yeah, and then the other people, like you know, Madonna, she visits Europe for a week, and she still has an accent to this day. So it all matters your your mindset whether you can retain an accent. I wish I had one; it would be cool. But I had this upstate New York accent instead, and that works for me. And go and so. Um, Getting back to your book, I mean that. So you were in Harvard in the '90s, is as as, as the same as the character, is that right? Yeah, you know, I was actually at Harvard in the '80s. Um, I switched it to the '90s because you know, one, um, you know, we talked about the music. I think the music of the '90s was better, and so I wanted to sort of um, sort of, and something was happening then, and I wanted the, I wanted the atmosphere that we're in to feel like things were happening, things are new. Alternative rock is happening. Gangster rap is happening. You know, and I wanted to have that sense of freshness and newness you have when you're a freshman in college. And two, back in the 90s, the internet was finally happening too. I mean, during my day, I, you know, I was I had a computer back in college, but you know, the internet wasn't starting to take over our lives the way it is now. And I didn't want to see the, the book today because I think almost any book you write in, in, about college today has to be almost primarily about the internet because that, that, that affects people's lives so completely and I didn't want to write that book I wanted to write about the dawn of that time when it was just starting to infect and influence our lives so the 90s seemed like a perfect home to sort of tell the story with the music with the technology and with the, the freshmen who I was telling the story about yeah and um I mean, you, and what was it like digging back into your, uh, you know, just the, just us as like, I mean, just, just, just like yourself as those geeky times, like, you know, reliving those, those through your writing. It's, what, it was some of that like, oh man, I got to think about me as this person. Well, it's funny you should say that because, you know, I actually started writing this book when I was actually in college. And so that was many years ago. But I put it aside for other things because I thought, you know what, I don't have the distance on this to do this right. I, mean, I had to break through some barriers. There were barriers at Harvard. I mean, one of them is my wife, Sharon Epperson, actually, I lived in South House back when I was at college. My wife lived at North House, and we never met. We met after college. And I thought, how weird that we're both living at the same campus, and we never met each other. And part of the reason was that, you know, my wife was in a black, I'm black, but we, um, we hung out in different circles. I hung out in sort of Harvard Lampoon circles, which were mostly white and multicultural, and she hung out in mostly black circles because she was part of a black sorority called AKA. And so we had these weird non-intersecting circles, and she actually knew one of my brothers who was there. Um, I, I had three brothers who went to Harvard, too, and, we didn't know, and, and she's, so we somehow didn't meet. And so um, I felt like there were a lot of barriers of sort of class and race I needed to sort of think my way through before I'd actually, I could actually write a book about Harvard. So I, I kept revisiting it years and years later, and finally I felt like the time was right to finally um, reconstruct it 
and write the book. Okay, now I have to ask, how did you meet your wife? Now, how much longer after Harvard? Uh, we met about... Um, uh, two years ago, right? <laughs> no, yeah. We met um, uh, uh, about uh, four years after Harvard, uh, five years after Harvard, four or five years after Harvard, we met in the halls of, of Time magazine. Um, she, I was um, a writer, um, reporter there, and she was a correspondent there. And, you know, we saw each other in the hallway, and uh, it, was, it was instant. It, we just began hanging out and talking and dating. And it just, it's weird, you know, I think a lot of people don't believe in, like, love at first sight. But I have to say, um, uh, that totally changed my mind. Because, I mean, uh, just, it, we have an, it, it, uh, a near instant connection. The minute I saw her, I thought, you know, we, we, we got to get to know each other. Uh, and then we, just, we, we began, we've been together ever since. Yeah. I love those stories. Okay, so do you know from her point of view, did she think the same of you? Or was there a little more time that she needed? Do you know if it, the sparks were the same? Yeah, I, I think she just came around about a year ago. <laughs> so, just, I think about a year ago, she thought, this is, this is working for me. So, about 20 years into the process, she thought, okay, works for me. But, you know, she's a little more deliberate with her process. So, I, I think now, two kids later, I think, she, I think she's into it. So, yeah. She's like, and then that handcuff was kind of like hurting for a while. You just kind of have to go with it. <laughs> but, you know, but I think there is, a, 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 there is sort of a, a serious side to it in that I think that, you know, sometimes at colleges, you know, you... We always hear the t- tale of, you know, you, you walk into some dining halls and people are always sitting at the black table or the white table or the, 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 the athlete table. And those kind of barriers can sort of keep people from meeting the people they're actually sort of destined to be with. And that happened to my, my wife and I, because, you know, my wife and me, because um, uh, we were, um, you know, she's at North House, where I ate all the time. I used to go there all the time and eat. And somehow we didn't run into each other. Uh, at one point, I sort of led the recruitment drive so I get more black people on the staff of the Harvard Lampoon and so I could talk to members of her class, I addressed the, 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 the Black Students Association, which she was a member of, I went to the, the freshman black table and um, somehow we still miss each other or maybe she, she heard me and thought that you know, no way do I want to join that crazy mostly white organization. So it's just weird the way those kinds of barriers sort of keep people apart and, but, you know, but it's funny, I was talking to one of my roommates the other day and he told me it was actually a good thing we didn't meet back when I was a, when I was a student because I was a, and I, I, ne- I couldn't have emotionally handled it. And she would have just sort of, like, you know, said, this guy's not ready and walked away. So maybe it was better that we, we met after I'd matured a bit after college. That timing thing is such an intriguing thing. It's, uh, yeah, timing and romance, it just it still baffles my mind. I'm a divorce dude, so I, so I go through it in my head in very different ways. But, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And then, uh, and then he lost his thought. <laughs> well, a, a timing, it, it is so important in terms of like, you know, whether you're ready for a relationship, whether you've, um, you've thought things through, you know, whether you're um, you know, emotionally able to sort of handle, you know, raising kids, which is a job in and of itself, you know, also whether you're settled professionally, we can both do things together. I mean, another thing I see pushing apart a lot of people of my generation is, you know, it's a generation where the men and the women are both, you know, uh, you know on the same level professionally. And who's going to be home to help with the kids? Uh, are the are the guys mature enough to be able to sort of share some of the housework and the, the child care duties? And you know, I think a lot of men of my generation weren't emotionally ready to do that. They they, they didn't they weren't able to model anyone. Uh, their, their parents didn't present a model for them of how to do it, and they had to sort of come up with it on their own. And it I saw it break break apart a lot of a lot of relationships. Yeah, because um, because the wives would be making more money, and the men would uh, have to kind of crack down and go, "Okay, I'm 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 taking care of the kids now." I, you know, I, I covered a lot of Hollywood stories back when I was um at the uh, at Time Magazine, and one thing I noticed a lot is whenever you had a male star who married a female star who was bigger than him, it often ended in divorce. I mean, I'm thinking about Halle Berry. Someone wrote a book about, and I, I love Halle, Halle Berry. She's a terrific talent, but it became clear that in many of her divorces, uh, part of the problem was that um, the guy couldn't handle her stardom. You know, she would, she, she um, um, you know, right after she won the um, the Oscar, in her relationship with her husband broke apart, and that guy was that guy was not a big star, and he couldn't handle her stardom, and uh, allegedly cheated on her. Maybe as a result of it. I mean, what kind of crazy person she's on Halle Berry? I mean, she's um, a better, super smart, I think, 
really talented, um, and uh, people couldn't handle they could not handle their stardom, and their 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 crazy old school masculinity got the best of them. And it, and what's and what's crazy is I mean someone on Halle Berry's level who get who gets you know who gets an award like an Oscar I mean is when they're at that level that's when they need the most support and the most grounding I think they they that's when they need their partner at home to, to be like I love you let's I'm gonna ride this with you because what it's like that kind of success and is it's almost more I mean when I when I get my little bit of success I have more anxiety when then when things are going bad it's almost like I need more help if things are good so I think as men people need to deprogram themselves out of these sort of old school things where you feel threatened if the woman is more successful I mean again I'm not gonna it's hard from the outside to know exactly what happened but look what happened to Hillary Swank Remember, she was also married to an actor who wasn't exactly on her level. She won the Oscar for, for Best Actress. Soon afterwards, you know, that, 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 that relationship broke apart. There was a time there where there was a run of Best Actress Oscar winners where almost every one of them broke up with their, their, their acting boyfriends who were less, or, or, or significant others, who were less talented and or less award-winning than them. And I have to imagine it came down to... Um, you know, the, their relative levels of professional success. And that's just a high-platform, a high-profile example of that happening. I think it happens throughout, you know, throughout society. It's only that's sort of on a platform when we see it. But I think it has a lot to do with a lot of men can't handle success on the part of their, their spouses or their spouses earning more than them. And it tears apart the way they, um, it tears apart the relationships in ways they can't even admit to themselves. And I hope it changes. You know, I try to raise my kids so, so they can um, grapple with this better than previous generations. You try to model that better. I mean, one thing I'm doing at my small level is I'm trying to cook more. <laughs> you know, I'm a terrible cook, but I realize finally that um, even my bad cooking is a good sign to kids that they, this is what they need to do. They need to be helping out in the kitchen. Um, even if it's terrible, so you know, I, I cook the things that I can do, like you know, chicken sandwiches and and baked chicken and a lot of chicken. You know, uh, um, I'm I'm trying to do curry too, but um, my kids don't want me to do it. Um, I, I think I can do it. You know, hamburgers, just things, just things that I know they enjoy and like, and they appreciate me in there a couple of days a week. You know, cooking food for them. And co- I, there's something about cooking for loved ones and cooking for your family and your friends. There, there's something that just feels so much better about it. I'd rather be at a barbecue and a cookout than going to a restaurant with friends just because there's there's almost a, um, a weird primal thing where it kind of feels like we're coming back to our old selves maybe gen, you know maybe centuries ago where it was just they just talk and cook. Well, I think you're exactly right with that. And also because you know I had those roots in Jamaica, I wanted to sort of recreate some of the great food that I had growing up. Um, I'm not at that level yet, uh, but so I'm doing sort of more basic American comfort food type things yet. But um, I, I do find they appreciate it. And also I find that the food I can cook at home, even though it's basic, because it's fresh, it actually tastes better than the stuff I'm paying for. The kids actually like it more than me going out there and buying something for them. If I'm in the kitchen laboring and making them, you know, fried zucchini with, you know, a, a good crust to it. And they like that. It's healthy for them. It, it, it's, it's, it's hot, fresh out of the oven, and they appreciate it. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's fantastic. All right. No, you, you have me at a loss. You got, you got so much go, great going on with your life as well with the, the writing and the, the family. So that's so much fun. So we can't talk about anything. There's so much more to talk about. I mean, the, 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 thing, the, thing, about, uh, the thing about cooking that, that's difficult for me is that, you know, um, uh, I, um, you know I, 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 again, I'm trying. I hope to get better. Um, it, is, it is tough to balance having more than one dish at a time, though. Cause I, usually, I usually have to do two dishes because having three dishes going at a time, I find it difficult to do. Do you ever cook three dishes at once where you have like a, you know, the main entree, the side, and maybe some sort of dessert going? Because um, then, because then, one goes bad, then the whole thing is kind of ruined. Well, I, I can do two, but I think that's because of my DJ day, DJ gigs. Because I had, you know, I, I had to queue up the next record. I had only a certain amount of time, and so maybe that maybe that helped. And so now I feel like as long as I can compare it to DJing, then I can do it. Yeah, it, it's tough. It's tough to do all three, and then also throwing in, you know, my difficulty at home is I, I work a full day at Audible's executive editor. And then I maybe do some cooking, and then I also have to find time to write. And so I find myself up really late at night, 
writing away. The only time I can find to write sometimes is like after midnight. I mean, midnight and two is kind of the, the golden two hours where I can um, where I can find time to write. And how do you, what do you when do you find time to write yourself? I'm an afternoon guy. For some reason, my sweet oh, really? we, my sweet spot is like yeah, twelve to three, twelve to four is when I'm. I don't know why. That that, that that was also my sweet spot when I used to exercise a lot more. I would I was I was always at the gym at that time. So I don't know what it is. If it means anything, or if I'm just lazy and never got out of that time zone. Yeah, I remember back when I wrote my first book. This is back in the '90s. In my book, My Favorite War, my debut novel. I used to always skip going out with my friends because I'd be home writing. And um, I remember one time I was, I was home writing and I got a knock on the door. I was living in a group house, group, group home at the time. And um, it was Bernie Shaw. I remember Bernie Shaw from CNN? He was um, one of the few black anchors. And he came by and he's like, um, you know, I was out, I guess he was at some bar and he ran to some of my friends and they told him I was home writing and he wanted to come by. And this is because this he was a big CNN anchor at the time. It just encouraged him to keep going because he's like, I, I heard you chose instead of going to the bar, you were here writing. I want to congratulate you and keep. I, I thought it was so cool that this anchor from CNN would actually come by my house where I was living in DC at the time, Adams Morgan, just to tell me to keep at it. And because uh, we needed more authors out there, so Bernie Shaw's passed on since then. But I've always, uh, I've always, uh, uh, really admired the fact he took the time out of his his busy night. <laughs> to come by and encourage a 20-something writer to keep at it because it was important. So, And also, that's your first novel, which, I mean, the first the first novel, you, you don't know if it's going to get published. You don't know what's going to happen with it. And and I, I feel like those little those little moments mean everything. It does. It's funny. Um, when I was struggling to write my first novel, um, I, I, I didn't quite know how to do it. I didn't have a whole lot of models. My, my dad had published a number of books about economics. He was an economist for the State University of New York at Brockport. My mother is, um, is a professor of African-American history at the State Univers- University of New York at Brockport. So I, I could model them for academic books because they did that, but I, I, not for like you know, writing novels and whatnot. But one, one of the first bits of encouragement I got was Isaac Asimov. Remember Isaac Asimov? He um, wrote I, Robot, great science fiction writer. I remember at one time, I think he was in the Guinness Book of World Records for having written the most science fiction books ever. And um, he actually came by, this is back in the, would have been back in the 80s or 70s, to, um, to, uh, to Brockport, New York, just to talk to the students. And I couldn't believe that Isaac Asimov, author of I, Robot and the Foundation Trilogy, was actually coming to, to my hometown. And it was really it was inspirational to me to see this guy. Because yeah, he's cuts quite an impressive figure. Uh, he is, he's, he's, you know, he's from Russia. He has you know, big, bushy side, sideburns. He's a big personality. It was, it was cool to see him. And so that was inspirational to me. But after I graduated from college, Jack, he wrote um, John Updike. And John Updike was a former member of the Harvard Lampoon. And so all the Lampoon people sort of have the, 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 um, the home addresses for other editors. So I, I sent him a letter saying, how do I, you know, how do, I do this? How do I get, become a, an author? And he actually responded to me. You know, John Updike was a huge writer at the time, um, a very influential American letters, um, an arts critic for the, for the New Yorker, author of a number of great books. And so I get this letter from him, and uh, it's, a, it's like a single-space letter um, written on, in a, obviously, some sort of home typewriter. Um, it's kind of weird because it's almost like the kind of letter a serial killer would write because all the, all the, the lines were really grouped closer together. And... Um, and the, the one line I remember from it, um, I'm paraphrasing now, was something like, um, you know, don't worry if your book doesn't do well because some very dumb people write some very good books and some very smart people write some very bad books. Uh, I don't know if that was an insult or not, <laughs> but it, it, it seemed insightful to me. And just the fact you would actually respond to me really um, made, me, made me feel better about what I was doing, that this was an actual possibility that this could happen. What's crazy is um, when I'm teaching like novel one, one of my assignments is write an author, and don't email or, or I mean yeah email them or something, but not through social media and don't ask them for a reply. Just tell them what you tell them what you thought of their book, and about ninety percent of the time the authors write back and the students are like, oh my god they wrote back. I'm like yeah you have no idea these people are available. They love they love the craft. Uh, that's a great that's great advice because you know the, uh, these authors aren't like movie stars where they get a whole lot of personal I mean some, some of them do but um, the other thing I would advise people to do is if you can go to a reading for an author go to it 
meet them in person. Make that face-to-face -face connection with them because they'll remember you, they'll have a connection to you, and maybe they can help you out later. Yeah. Because the authors you meet in person are the authors who might read your manuscript or, right. or maybe share their agent with you or give you some sort of pointed advice or take you under their wing or do something that will help you along. But if you can meet them in person, if they come to your hometown, if they're in the area doing a reading, go and meet them face-to-face -face and make that connection because, you know, social media, I love social media, some aspects to it, but it's still not the same as that personal connection you make with somebody face-to-face. Um, uh, -face. So, so go do that, and sometimes good things will happen from that. Yeah, it's um, one of my uh, buddies, Janet Fitch, she says, be a literary citizen, and that's part of being a literary citizen is going, go to readings, participate, buy the, buy the author books, go to the, go to the signings, and beautiful things just happen because especially like even the crowd that's there, we're all fans. And you, you meet your friends there. You meet your future friends where you're like, you like this You like this guy? You like this girl too? Oh, cool. Well, let's go get coffee tomorrow. You work on books as well? Oh, okay. Yeah, let's talk. And it's just, those are the, those are the, one of the few clubs I feel like I can belong to and feel okay in. Yeah, but, but don't cross the line in becoming a literary stalker. We don't, we don't need those. You know, I, I, I've done it myself. Uh, back when I was a music critic, I remember this one person, I, 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 I'm Alanis Morissette. For some reason, I wanted to talk to her, and she would not give Time Magazine an interview. I couldn't believe it. So at one point, I found out what hotel she was at. <laughs> I thought, let me just go to the hotel, hang out in the lobby, and maybe I'll see her and I'll talk to her. And so I, I, checked, I actually checked into the hotel. I was waiting there. I thought to myself, this is crazy. <laughs> I've, cro I've crossed a line here that I shouldn't cross. And I ended up checking out and not talking to her. And later, I just I just called a publicist and set up an interview on the phone. And then I and I did end up talking to her, and she's quite charming. But I thought, but you you got you got to make sure you don't cross. It's easy to cross that line and end up in a hotel a hotel lobby waiting for someone. And, and that, that's not cool. I don't know if Alana would have appreciated me jumping out at her her, her hotel lobby. What I did because I'm just I'm a silly Nick Cave fan. So the second the second first time I interviewed him was on the phone. The second time was in person, and uh, and at the hotel he was staying at. So I decided to just go ahead and stay at that hotel, so I could see him after sound check. And and he's like, oh, you're staying here too. I'm like, yeah. And so like we were just like shooting the shit <laughs> even longer than the interview because he's like, oh, okay. And he had no clue that I lived like you know three blocks away, but I just wanted to make sure I was around the bad seats. Nick Cave is cool to stock. He's a cool guy. So stock Nick Cave, stock Michael Stipe. That he's cool. Hang out to see if you can get to him. So uh, those are cool people to hang out with and try to stock. So uh, I'm giving my blessing for that. <laughs> I, well, I mean, especially Nick Cave, that he's blown up so much this last few tours. It blows my mind. Yeah, and there, there are a lot of old school artists like that that I think are sort of cool to sort of uh, find out more about you know um, you know m maybe anyone from the cure that's yeah. cool that, that's okay to you know stalk them so don't hurt them but stalk them you know follow them around you know, go from concert to concert that's that's okay yeah, yeah. And, and wait after sound check and then and, and wait after uh, loadout and all that stuff. you won't be the only one for those bands <laughs> there'll probably be like 50 people dressed exactly like you waiting for waiting for the cure to, to, to come out from sound check so what was what was your first assignment where you were assigned to go on tour with a band and do a profile? Was that the Smashing Pumpkins or was that another? Um, I'm trying to remember. The, I can't remember my first assignment. There's so many that they, they kind of blur. Um, I remember one of my best assignments was I was asked back in the '90s to cover Rock and Rio. This is back in the days when I'm when I'm magazines actually had had big budgets. Yeah. And so um that's, uh, yeah. So um, I was asked to um, go cover Rock and Rio, so that of course they, they had to fly me to Rio, all on Time Magazine's dime. Uh, I got to stay there for like a week. I don't know exactly why I was there for a week, but I was there for I think Rock and Rio was only a couple of days. So I was there for a week. Checked into a great hotel. Sting was at the hotel hanging by the pool. Um, I remember my wife, and they also paid for my wife to go for some reason. I, I don't know exactly why. Time would pay for my wife to go, but somehow they paid for my wife. No one questioned um, expense reports at the time. It was like, this is all good. Send your wife. That's fine. We'll get a big enough suite for, for her. And my, the only thing I had to produce for this for this trip was a couple um, blog posts because blogging was kind of newer then. And like, let's get some blogging in. So I'm, I'm there for a week in Rio with my wife at a hotel that Sting is at. And um, all I have to do is do some blog posts. 
I'm yeah. like, this is not this is not sustainable. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course it wasn't, because yeah, right. <laughs> Megan's are in a lot of trouble these days. Um, yeah, yeah. But it was, certainly was a, was a great assignment. My other really great assignment from time was um, years ago. I remember I was I was um, asked to um, to uh, to do an interview with Shaquille O'Neal. No, was Shaquille O'Neal or was it Kobe Bryant? I think it was Shaquille O'Neal. And um, so I had to go watch the Lakers play in Salt Lake City. And there was a big snowstorm, so I got snowed in. And so they said, you know, why don't you stay there for a couple of days and go to the um, the uh, go to the uh, the um, Sundance Film Festival too? And so. I had a couple days in Utah, um, first interviewing Shaquille O'Neal, and then seeing all these indie films, and it was completely paid for. I remember that thinking, I was in the dark watching some great film, thinking to myself, why am I even being paid for this? I, I, should, I should be paying them to watch basketball games and go see indie films for a couple days. This is, this is not work. This is like, this is like someone should, I should be paying them for doing this. It was kind of a dream few days. Yeah. And when you interviewed, uh, when you interviewed Shaq, I, I just feel like that would be so intimidating because of his height and how it, and just, just, just I'd just be like, wow, you're, you're, not, you're like, otherworldly. I don't know if it was like that for you. Well, it is funny you should mention that because I'm six five myself, and I got a brother who's six eleven. Okay. So uh, I'm used to seeing that kind of height, but Shaq's on a different different sort of level because most people when you see them, especially NBA stars, they look stretched. Um, Shaq looks magnified. Yeah. Every part of him is big, not just lengthwise, but widthwise too. I remember we went to his hotel room and he ordered a meal. He ordered two huge, super-sized, specially made hamburgers, two huge vats of, of soda or something, two huge like um, plates of fries. So they bring all this stuff in, and I turn to Shaq and I'm like, Shaq, and I'm not hungry. He's like, looks at me and goes like, this is all for me. <laughs> <laughs> and he proceeds to demolish all this food right in front of me. I'm like, that's what it, that, that's what a, a giant eats. So, um, but I, I love Shaq because um, I think I thought he was one of the greatest centers ever. And think about it, and, and people understand watching even watching you know people like Giannis today, who I think is an incredible talent. Shaq had a presence on the court that I've never seen matched. I mean, I, maybe Wilt Chamberlain had it back in his day. But at one point, there was a couple years, period, like two or three years, where you really couldn't stop Shaq. He had to stop himself shooting free throws, which he couldn't do. But he could get any shot he basically wanted. No one could stop him. They had to just hope for a call. It was kind of ridiculous. And he also had a very big, engaging personality. Not all entertainers are fun talking about themselves or talking about what they do. He was so much fun. Had, he, had a, he had a personality that matched his size, especially when you talked to him in person. And that was just cool to see. And um, uh, he, really, he really was an, an incredible personality, especially at the height of his powers. Yeah, wow. That's just amazing. Okay, let's go back to uh, being on Harvard Lampoon. Now, what was, now what was the story of you getting on to... Um, what do they call it? A, what do they call it? A mag, a mag, what would they call it? Magazine. Okay, yeah, yeah. We call it a magazine that nobody reads. So <clears throat> I, I always loved writing, you know, and uh, I knew uh, at first I joined the Harvard Crimson, and uh, which, is the, the, which is the college newspaper there. And I remember I got in there, but you know, I used to always um, follow my stories in the newsroom there, but for some reason other editors would always walk up to me and go, like, can I help you? Like, I wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah. And I was one of the few black editors at the time. I thought, you should have said, yeah, I need a coffee. Can you get some cream in that? Uh, I just thought of that. So it began to annoy me. I was like, let me, let me find another home for myself then. And, um, and so I ended up coming for the Harvard Lampoon, which is supposedly the big rival of the Harvard, Harvard Crimson. And the first time I tried out for the Harvard Lampoon, I, actually I got cut. Uh, they didn't like what I was doing. Uh, they didn't think it was funny. Um, and, uh, I, but I learned a lesson. It was actually a good lesson. I think actually getting cut, facing um, an obstacle, is actually, you know, Lao Tzu says that, you know, uh, failure is an opportunity. And it was that for me, too, because, um, because I, I need, I, a lot of times when you write, um, you know, you're, you're, basi- you're, basing, you're basing on things that you feel, uh, basing your writing on your own feeling, you feel good about things. Now I realize I have to think about the feelings of others and how they were going to react to my pieces. And so I was able to sort of, you know, recalibrate myself, comp again, and this time get on the staff. It's funny, I was reading a story the other day about um, Michael Jordan. Of course, he famously you know, didn't make his varsity team, I think it was sophomore year, and then when he got inducted into the, into the Hall of Fame, he actually brought the player who had taken his place on the varsity team that year 
to the ceremony so he could once again tell the world the coach made a mistake picking that guy instead of him. So clearly that grudge fueled him throughout his career. And I feel like being cut was also fuel for me, realizing you know, I can do better, I, I should do better, and I will do better, and I did that. And so it was a great, great place to be on, a lot of great people who were on the staff with me. Um, you know, it's not a very serious place, as you might imagine. Not a whole lot of work gets done. But you do you know, learn something, bouncing around ideas with other people, being around people who are funny. And, um, and so that was a cool thing to be part of. And, and, and it's a humor magazine, so how did that fuel what you went on to do with uh, your other writing? Well, I mean, your, your novel's funny, but, but, but uh, like, did it help with also the journalism side of it? I thought it did because, you know, I think that a lot of journalists can be humorless and it's good to have that uh, being part of that sort of, an, that, that anarchic spirit can help. help. Like, for example, at one point, Lampoon got in trouble about something. I can't remember what it was. I remember, I seem to have a vague memory of somehow um, us renting a baby elephant and taking it around Harvard Square and baby elephants are actually kind of dangerous because even baby elephants are big. And um, I remember the trainer had a, a chain around his neck, which is actually pretty inhumane and couldn't quite control it. And uh, people could have gotten hurt. And I can't remember if it was that incident or some other incident, but the, the dean of students actually called the lampoon into his office saying, you know, to chew us out about what had happened. I can't remember if it was for that incident or some other incident. And although I wasn't directly involved, I actually volunteered to be part of the group that gets chewed out by the dean of students because I'd never been chewed out by a school administrator before, especially not one from Harvard. So I wanted to be in on getting chewed out to see what it was like, you know, like something out of Animal House or something like that. So I remember going, going to the dean of students' office, and um, the first thing he said to us is, I hear you were very rude to my secretary. And we're, like, and we're, and we're ready on our guard, like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, we didn't mean to be rude to the secretary. Then later we found out it was all a psychological game. And he says that to every group of students that he talks to, because it puts them immediately on the defensive, because nobody wants to be rude to a secretary. So even being part of that discussion sort of made me feel, you know, like, it, it, it put me in a place where you you um, you see what it's like to be you know you know uh, a, a problem. You see what it's like to be uh, on the uh, being chewed up by uh, by by um, someone in power. It was just kind of a cool place to be. And um, so the, the lampoon was full of sort of adventures like that one. And I, I thought it would inform my my work in good ways. I mean, in the book, it's in, the, in my book, uh, the Harvard harpoon. I sort of use more as a symbol of of of, of class restrictions. And um, in class barriers on campus, and also I talk about the the secret societies that are pervasive on campus. These things called final clubs, and I hated the final clubs because the final clubs were kind of like these these um, fraternities on steroids. They've been around for hundreds of years, but they only admitted men, and they admitted very few minorities. And the people who who, get, who got into these final clubs were often like you know eased on their path to. Um, financial and social success because they were plugged into this network of people. And I always sort of hated that about them. The Lampoon, which I joined, I liked because it was a meritocracy. If you were funny, you got it on. There were men and women. Um, there weren't as many minorities as there should be, um, but you know, we tried to work to change that when I was there. My, my, one of my, my college roommates, Young Junaim, who count for the Lampoon at the same time as me, he was even more successful and got a lot of Asian Americans on the lampoon when I was there, so um, uh, yeah, so the, 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 the Harvard was full of sort of things like that, where um, cool places like the lampoon and other places that sort of symbolized class restrictions and social restrictions and things to be to be railed against. Right, right. Yeah, and that's what's great about the, the especially like comedy and stuff, where it's, you know, like in, when you watch stand-up comedy, if you're funny, you're funny. If it's working, or if it's not, you know, there's that. From what I see, <laughs> yeah, that, that certainly is. I mean, um, it, it, um, you know, the the one thing about humor, especially, um, it, 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 as opposed to other kinds of performance art or writing, is that um, there's a specific kind of response you need to get to show whether it's working. If people aren't smiling, if they're not laughing, if they're not feeling the humor, you know it's failed. Yeah. And there's other kinds of writing where there's not any kind of specific response you can point to to say whether it's working or not. It's far more, I think, um, subjective. But there is, it, you know, obviously people laugh at different things, but if you're at a stand-up act and nobody's laughing at all, there's almost no way you can argue it really is working at all. Unless it's Andy Kaufman and you're doing some sort of, some sort of weird um, performance art thing where it's not really about the laughter, it's about the horror 
that it, it induces. Yeah, that was, <laughs> did you did you uh, just Andy Kaufman? Did you see that documentary about Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman? Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. You know, yeah. Andy Kaufman was an interesting guy. I mean, um, uh, you know, that's part of what I sort of, sort of get into in the book in terms of like what it, what humor is, what works, what doesn't work. Um, when you uh, when when are you crossing a line and insulting some certain group um, with your comedy and what you're allowed to say and not say depending on who you are. You know, um, one sort of line in the book that repeats is, you know, uh, what you laugh at is who you are. And I'm trying to get across the idea that um, the things that you find funny say something about who you are as well. And uh, I find that to be true. Yeah, I, yeah, I like that. I was when I when I read that, I was I was like, okay, that, there's a point there. Um, I was gonna, oh, I was gonna ask you about your name because I call you Christopher, but you go by CJ. Is there, is there a story behind that? Yeah, there is a story behind that. You know, I wish I could have just retained my name throughout my, my career. Christopher John Farley was my full name. That's on a lot of my books. For my young adult books, I've been going by CJ Farley. Um, but my last book, Game World, was written under CJ Farley. This book is run under CJ Farley. Um, the reason I've gone back and forth sometimes over my name is, of course, a comedian, Chris Farley, um, who um, I often get mistaken for, even though we're completely different. Of course, uh, he's um, white um, and dead. Um, I am black and alive. And, and yet we've had certain interactions. For example, when I was living in the village in New York City, they actually sent me his script for Coneheads. I don't know why, but someone sent me his script for Coneheads, like, you know, wanting him to do it. And I'm like, one, I can't believe I couldn't get this to his agent. And I remember reading it thinking, this guy should definitely should not take this part. This is not a good career move for him. But I kind of wanted to see his career going out in flames at that point. So I didn't actually pass it message on to him. And then another time, I had a meeting with Chris Rock. Um, and um, uh, cause I was doing a story on him for Time Magazine. And now he knew I wasn't Chris Rock because we'd actually had an interaction. But... I was going up to him and see him at Saturday Night Live, and they wouldn't let me up stairs to 30 Rock to see him because they're like, "You're not Chris Farley. What kind of sick joke is this?" You know, because you know, you go there, like Chris Farley, see Chris Rock. They're like, "Not funny guy, not funny dude." And so, so that was a weird. So I've had a lot of sort of weird interactions like that throughout my career with people like thinking I was joking, making a sick joke about Chris Farley, or when I was. And so I go by C.J. Farley instead. Now, the one thing I've, um, it's interesting is that a lot of people don't know is that Chris Farley, obviously a, a terrifically talented person, but he never really had that sort of career peak. He never made that movie that everyone will remember him for. The best he had was really Tommy Boy, which is not a movie a lot of people really sort of treasure today. I think some, some low comedy fans do. But he actually was going to do the movie Shrek, which Mike Myers ended up doing. And he actually did some vocal tests for it. And had he actually done Shrek, I would have had to completely change my name because it would have made him a, would have made him famous forever on kind of the level of like a Kurt Cobain. So um, I'm actually, you know, I feel for him. Obviously, I'm sad that he passed on. He was a talented guy, but I'm really glad he didn't do Shrek because I would have been in real trouble. I'm also glad my name isn't Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle or someone very famous doing good work today because I'd never be able to outlive that. And um, how how was it? Uh, interviewing Chris Rock I mean I, he's one of my idols I I would like him and Chappelle I would just sit there and go uh well it's funny you mentioned um, both those guys because I kind of made a one of my sort of side things I did at, at Time Magazine I did a lot of interviews with comedians that I really loved and um, you know, Chris Rock was great a funny guy did a big story on him but I also did a big story on Dave Chappelle and you remember that whole period where Dave Chappelle disappeared and went to South Africa well, at the time, I was profiling him for Time Magazine, and so he and, and he and he was kind of profiling me as well because he used to come by Time Magazine and hang out, and like he came to some of our meetings, like he'd come to the meetings with me. It's like because you know the top editors would have meetings, and Dave Chappelle would just walk in with me, and so so that was weird. Now and again, he'd give me a call late at night and say, "Hey, I'm at this cafe. Come, you know, you, you, you want to talk some more?" So and then finally he disappeared, and no one knew where he was. And Hickey gave me a call from South Africa. You know, I'm in South Africa. No one knows where I am. I'm like, why are you calling me? And so I actually wrote a story for the Wall Street Journal, for, for Time Magazine at the time, sort of revealing where he was, 
and he gave us the exclusive about why he left, what was going on in his head, what was going on in his heart. And if you Google it, you can see it, but uh, it was kind of the break, big news at the time um, why Dave Chappelle had sort of broken his, um, his Comedy Central contract at the time where he was earning tens of millions and disappeared to South Africa. Uh, the, the short story that he told me was, was uh, and by the way, when he called me from South Africa, I didn't quite believe he was there, and I didn't want to take his word for it. So I, actually, at the time, my, my wife was pregnant, so I couldn't go to South Africa myself because um, I didn't want to. Um, I, I didn't want to go to the motherland when I had a real mother at home. So I ended up having this, the um, the our Johannesburg bureau chief go to visit with him just to make sure he confirmed he was there yeah. and and not calling from a payphone around the corner. Um, so, um, but the time he told me something that's always 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 stuck with me is that um. He was doing, he was doing this um, a skit that sort of, um, this skit that sort of played on various kind of um, racial themes, and he couldn't quite tell whether he was he was doing something that was really funny, or doing something that sort of played into white stereotypes, because he always sort of played on the edge there, and the idea that he didn't know whether he was, you know, selling out or subverting um, tropes, kind of helped push him over the edge. That's one reason why he sort of broke everything and went away to South Africa. And um, that's something anyone who sort of is an artistic creator kind of deals with. Is this something that's, you know, challenging society's norms? Or am I just buying into them? And that's something I sort of play with in the book, too. It's always hard to tell whether or not you're, you're subverting things or buying into them. Because some of the people who think they're subverting things the most are really just following the program society has set out for them. And even great artists like Dave Chappelle sometimes can't even tell where the line is and sometimes cross a line in awful ways. And with, with Chappelle, it's in that co- the, the whole comedy thing. You have It's almost like you have to cross the line, it seems like, and then find the middle. And probably being on, I mean, being on a TV show and being in front of a crowd are just two different things because he's got to deal with network stuff or whatever. So trying to get actual real advice out of a comedy show instead of the suits upstairs. I don't know what I'm talking about. I think I, I look like I do, don't I? Yeah, I think what you're saying, cause, you know, the thing is, throughout um, entertainment history when it comes to black artists, um, you know, when you're a black artist, you have this, this base of people that maybe you're, you're, you're your first supporters, and then maybe you reach the, the wider masses. And sometimes when that happens, it's hard to tell, am I still holding true to my original values, or am I saying stuff that um, that the masses accept and love, and that's somehow changing the, um, changing my art in some deep level that's really embarrassing. That's something that Louis Armstrong dealt with. I mean, obviously a great um, jazz artist, but after a while, his performance style people began to sort of read it as kind of a minstrel-like act. I mean, if you watch him today, like you watch a clip of him singing um, uh, Hello, Dolly! with Barbra Streisand, you know, his eyes are big, he has this broad kind of smile, and I love his stuff, and I think he's a genius, but it became sort of seemingly sort of old school to many people. Jump ahead to gangster rap. Um, obviously, gangster rap came out of a really kind of, you know, urban place, you know, Compton and other areas, people talking about the authentic things happening in their lives. But in the end, it was mostly bought by, you know, white male teenagers who maybe saw different things in it that, that um, and were reacting to different sort of things that, that sort of satisfied them. When you're, and when you're doing that, is it changing the kind of stuff you're doing? Um, are you doing it for the right reasons? And I think some of the stuff we listen to today, you're thinking, oh my gosh, do you need to talk about that kind of stuff? Uh, is it really authentic? Are you really trying to change what's the, your underground conditions? Or are you, are you performing for the white masses? And so I think any black artist in that position has to sort of, you know, uh, has to sort of navigate that path to make sure they're coming from an authentic place, they're saying stuff that's true, and they're not subverting their work merely to make sales to this wider population that's out there. That makes sense. I grew up I grew up Jehovah's Witness and I wrote a book about it. And okay. I find it fascinating. I think it should make it should, it should be a movie, I think. It already is actually. It's on Amazon Prime, yeah. Is that a, it's a movie really? I didn't know that. Eric Stoltz directed it. I wrote it. Oh, I didn't know that. I I didn't I didn't know that. Okay. Totally plugging myself. But but the um 
but what uh, oh, but I felt like I needed to represent the Jehovah's Witnesses appropriately, and even the ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, because there's so many levels of anger and uh, the ways that I could have made fun, where I did not want to make fun of the belief system at all when I was in that. So, yeah, it's I felt a re- I felt a responsibility to that. And now, you know, the next book, I don't feel a responsibility to anyone. I'm going to be a buffoon, but. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and, and another level as an artist, as you say, you sort of um, allude to there, you, you do want to, you know, um, make sure you're navigating that line, but also as an artist, you want to be free. You, you don't want to feel like you're just saying stuff to sort of fit some sort of social agenda and you're true to your, to, to your muse. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day about how on one level, is it freeing to be somebody who feels like they have no social responsibilities or... Is it somehow? Um, is, is it somehow? Uh, does it give you a, a a guiding star when you do feel like you have some social responsibilities that you want to adhere to, adhere to, or maybe the the best places in between? But that's something I think m- many artists think about: whether they should be completely free of any kind of social responsibility and ties, and therefore they're totally um, free as artists, or does true freedom lie in coming up with some some guideposts? that you want to adhere to, and that somehow helps shape your work in important ways. And staying, yeah, staying true to, I guess, what's in your heart might be a way to put it. I don't know. Because <laughs> yeah, sometimes you have to make people angry, you know? And, I, and that's sometimes where artists have to be, where they have to challenge what's going on and saying, hey, you think this way, here's what you should really think. I mean, that's one reason why I joined the Harvard Lampoon in the first place. Yes, there weren't, there, at the time, there weren't any black people on the staff, but I felt like this is where I needed to be. You know, I want to be part of, part of this funny group. And, and also, and this is what the gospel I tried to spread when I was at, the Lamp, when I was at Harvard at the time, I, I thought that um, more black people should be part of this because there's nothing wrong with being funny. It's a good in and of itself to be with other people who sort of are trying to um, write funny stuff and improve the writing. And also, and, and from a pre-professional standpoint, it also gave you um, a roadmap to meeting people who can maybe get you jobs in, 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 in TV, in film, in, 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 in writing novels. And so more black people should be part of a group like that rather than just rejecting it because it had this white history. We could join it and kind of make our new history and write our own way of doing things at Lampoon. So that's the gospel I tried to preach at the, preach at the time, and, um, and, uh, and it worked out for many people. I love that. C.J. Farley, thank you so much for being on the show. This is fantastic. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great. Thank you. C.J. Farley, everyone, check out his latest novel, Around Harvard Square, available from Akashic Books. And stay tuned next week. Who do we have? We have coming up on the show Saskia Vogel and her book. uh, We'll discuss her book, Permission, as well as Christine Sneed in two weeks. Much more guest coming and yes english is my first language hey thanks a lot for listening to drinks with tony i will see you next wednesday